The ministry called Voice of the Martyrs focuses on the persecuted church throughout the world. Their website, they relate the following story about a pastor named John Ali Dora from Nigeria. On July 7, 2012, he heard gunshots in his village. People started yelling, the Fulani are coming, the Fulani are coming, referring to an ethnic group comprised mostly of Muslims who were becoming increasingly radical. These particular Fulani sought to remove the Christians from the land so that they could take it. The armed attackers started shooting people and even burned the church building with people still inside. The men chanted, Allahu Akbar, which means God is great. All told, they killed 44 people, including Pastor John's wife, four children, and two grandchildren. In the midst of this tremendous grief, Pastor John forgave the attackers and decided to pray for them rather than to seek revenge. He drew strength from Scripture, particularly from another man in the Old Testament who suddenly lost his family one day, the Old Testament character, Job. Job lost everything, wealth, children, everything except his wife, Pastor John said. Yet he did not turn his back on God. The story, that story has helped me not only to deal with the situation, but even to remain who I am. But throwing it all back to God and reflecting on the stories in the Bible, especially that of Job, has strengthened me to be who I am today. In the months following the attack, uh, Pastor John even preached a few messages about Job. And his prayer is to be faithful to the calling that God gave to him as a pastor and as a Christian. And that the Fulani attackers will come to know Christ. Friends, God does not abandon us to suffer on our own. Scripture gives us encouragement and understanding so that we can be like Job. And I think Job is one of the most important areas and helps in all of Scripture. Has it been a blessing to you these past couple months as we've been going through Job? But we're not done yet. We got one more message. Today we're going to conclude our study of Job that we've been doing the last few months. And my prayer is that this marvelous book will like, likewise strengthen us so that when we face trials, we will be able to persevere and count God blessed even in the midst of them. So let me encourage you, invite you to turn to Job chapter 40, Job chapter 40, found on page 446. And as you're turning... Hopefully by now you know the story of Job pretty well. But just in case, let me give a brief summary. Job is a righteous man whom God allowed Satan to severely afflict because Satan believed that Job would curse God. So Satan destroyed Job's wealth and children, but Job did not curse God. After several months, Job's friends arrived on the scene to comfort Job, 
But as you know the story, it didn't turn out so well. And basically, it just kind of turned into a dialogue or debate. His friends believed that suffering is always proportional to sin. So they believed that Job must have been quite a, an egregious sinner in light of all the suffering that he was going through. In reply, Job firmly and passionately avowed his innocence. He admitted that he was a sinner, but he said that his suffering goes beyond what he deserved. And we know from those opening chapters of Job that he is right. Sometimes people do suffer more than it is allotted to them, and God has his ways that he is accomplishing. In the midst of these conversations, we also see Job imply that God is unjust for allowing his suffering. So after they run through all of their dialogue, and a fourth man named Elihu joins the debate and points out that Job was not right to accuse God in this fashion. Last week we came to the climactic event of the whole story. In chapter 23, God manifests himself to Job in a whirlwind and questions Job about finding fault with him. To make his point, Job, excuse me, God asked Job a series of questions about creation. And he was bringing out the whole finding fault in himself. And he want, to make his point, he asked him these questions about creation. And so God starts with the physical world and asks Job about things like the, the earth and the stars and the seas and how these things are created and how they operate. And then he turns to the animal world and asks him things about various creatures like lions and ostriches and eagles. In each case, Job has no idea how God could create such things and how he sustains this world as he does. And after two chapters of questions, in Job 40, verse 2, God asks him, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. And at this point, Job recognizes that he is of small account and promises to keep his mouth shut. However, Job, does, he still does not renounce the things that he was saying earlier about God. And so God is going to make one more speech to Job. And that's what we're going to pick up here today. The, spec, the second speech of God to Job. So, everybody there yet? Job chapter 40? All right. So let's start and read verses... I'm sorry. Yeah, verses, Job chapter 40, verses 6 and 7. Let's read those two verses to get us going here where the Lord questions Job. It says, Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Dress for action like a man. I will question you, and you make it known to me. So in verse 7, God repeats exactly what he said back in chapter 38, verse 3. Dress for action like a man. I'm going to question you, and you make it known to me. And then he adds in verse 8, Will you even put me in the wrong? Will you condemn me that you may be in the right? God knows that Job is not convinced. He still finds fault with God. He must still in his heart question the justice of God for allowing him to suffer. And so God turns to this whole issue of the power to judge humanity. 
Job speaks about justice, but he really has no idea the power that it takes to judge the world. And so God focuses now on his dealings with humanity. It's really the first time in all of this long speech that God has given. He turns from the created world. Now he turns to humanity and how he deals with humanity. So pick it with me, if you will, in verses 9 through 14. It says, Have you an arm like God, and can you thunder with a voice like His? Adorn yourself with majesty and dignity. Clothe yourself with glory and splendor. Pour out the overflowings of your anger. And look on everyone who is proud and abase him. Look on everyone who is proud and bring him low. And tread down the wicked where they stand. Hide them all in the dust together. Bind their faces in the world below. Then will I also acknowledge to you that your own right hand can save you. So God asked Job to humble the proud and judge the wicked. Can you do that, Job? Can you do that? And so as with the first speech in chapters 38 to 39, the expected answer in all of this is no. Job has no idea how to do this. He has no power to do it. Only God can do these things. There is only one judge, and that is God. And because He has unfathomable power to bring this about. And so then to illustrate his point that he's making, God returns to nature. And so whereas before in the previous speech, God focused on the incredible knowledge that it took to orchestrate and create and sustain all of creation, now God focuses on the power it takes to control two mighty creatures, behemoth and leviathan. Now, the overarching point before we get into these creatures is that Job can't control them. They are far too mighty. And so if Job cannot control these two creatures, how much more should he have pause and reservation about pressing his case against the, ones, against the one who has made them, right? If you can't even control these creatures, why are you... Uh, why are you bringing these sorts of things against me when I am the one who has made them? Everybody following so far? That's the point of what God is getting at here with Job so far in the speech. Now, what are these two creatures, behemoth and leviathan? This is always a fun discussion. A lot of ink has been spilt on trying to identify these two creatures. In my opinion, it's probably the hardest interpretive question in the entire book of Job. There are different views by faithful scholars, so this is not a matter of orthodoxy, okay, where you land exactly on these creatures. There's two main views. One is that these are real creatures. The other view is that these are symbolic creatures, okay? And then there is another view, which is what I would hold to, is that these are actually a combination. They are real creatures, but they point to a greater reality. Okay? Well, you read it for yourself and tell me what you think. All right? We're going to read first about Behemoth in verses 15 through 24. It says there, Behold Behemoth, which I made as I made you. He eats grass like an ox. Behold his strength in his loins and his power in the muscles of his belly. He makes his tail stiff like a cedar, 
The sinews of his thighs are knit together. His bones are tubes of bronze, his limbs like bars of iron. He is the first of the works of God. Let him who made him bring near his sword. For the mountains yield food for him, where all the wild beasts play. Under the lotus plants he lies, in the shelter of the reeds and in the marsh. For his shade the lotus trees cover him, the willows of the brook surround him. Behold, if the river is turbulent, he is not frightened. He is confident, though Jordan rushes against his mouth. Can one take him by his eyes or pierce his nose with a snare? So what is this thing? Well, as I said, I think these are actual creatures. And the description of behemoth matches pretty well the description of the hippopotamus. Do you know much about hippopotamuses other than the game Hungry Hungry Hippos? I know that popped in some of your minds. Remember that game? That's a great game. Do you know any more about them? Well, if you know about them, you know that this description, again, kind of matches reasonably well with what is said of Behemoth. It says that it eats grass, not marbles. It's a very large creature. It dwells often in the water and is very, very powerful. Now, a male adult hippo can reach as much as 6,000 pounds. So it is an enormous creature. Now, besides hungry hippos, we often, though, have this image in our mind of a hippo as this kind of gentle, cuddly creature that we would love to just go up and give a big hug to. But it is the total opposite. Hippos are very aggressive. Very aggressive. In fact, in Africa, Zulu warriors regarded them as braver than lions. They would say of the chief, quote, He is a lion. Yes, he is better than a lion. He is a hippopotamus. Just to give you a perspective, sharks kill about 10 people a year. Hippopotamuses kill about 500 people a year. They don't eat you, but they will gore you, they will drag you into the water, they will trample you, and they will capsize your boat. So a hippopotamus is nothing to be messed with. So that is a possible identity of behemoth. What about Leviathan? Well, all of chapter 41 discusses it. I'm not going to read the entire chapter. I want to read verses 1 to 17 so you guys get a sense of what Leviathan is. All right, so everybody with me there? Chapter 41. All right, it says, Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue with a cord? Can you put a rope in his nose or pierce his jaw with a hook? Will he make many pleas to you? Will he speak to you soft words? Will he make a covenant with you to take him for your servant forever? Will you play with him as with a bird? Or will you put him on a leash for your girls? I always think that sounds pretty funny. Will traders bargain over him? Will they divide him up among the merchants? Can you fill his skin with harpoons or his head with fishing spears? Lay your hands on him. Remember the battle. You will not do it again. Behold, the hope of a man is false. He is laid low even at the sight of him. No one is so fierce that he dares to stir him up. Who then is he who can stand before me? Who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. 
I will not keep silence concerning his limbs or his mighty strength or his goodly frame. Who can strip off his outer garment? Who could come near him with a bridle? Who can open the doors of his face? Around his teeth is terror. His back is made of a row of shields, shut up closely as with a seal. One is so near to another that no air can come between them. They are joined one to another. They clasp each other and cannot be separated. So Leviathan is this large creature, has a door-like mouth and has teeth all around. It has hard armor on its body and it resides in water. Any guesses to what you think it might be? Well, if I had to put my money down, I would say that it is a crocodile. It matches pretty well with one. The Nile crocodile can grow up to 20 feet in length. There's a picture of one. You see its teeth there. It can weigh over 1,500 pounds. Its bite is four times as powerful as a grizzly bear. The only creature that has a stronger bite is the saltwater crocodile in Australia. About 1,000 people a year die from crocodile attacks. These are fierce creatures. So, that is my take on it. I think they are real creatures that God made. I think there, there has to be, in my opinion, speaking of a real creature, because it would seem to lose its effect to go through all of this detail to speak of, to speak of creatures that are entirely symbolic. Okay? So I do think he's referring to a real creature. Now, there are parts of the descriptions, because some of you might be thinking about this, that don't match the creatures exactly. For example, if you're still there in, in Leviathan, chapter 41, go down to verses 18 to 21. It says, Out of his mouth go flaming torches, sparks of fire leap forth. Out of his nostrils come forth smoke, as from a boiling pot and burning rushes. His breath kindles coals, and a flame comes forth from his mouth. So obviously crocodiles do not blow fire. Some, so some argue that this was an animal that was around in Job's day that has, been, has gone extinct, perhaps a dinosaur. That's possible, but there's no evidence a, a fire-breathing creature has ever existed. And to me it's more convincing, just in my opinion, that Job would speak of a creature that not only existed in his day, but God would speak of a creature that would continue to exist so we can continue to have a point of reference that this is who Leviathan actually is. I would also just point out that Job's speech, and really all of the book of Job, or excuse me, God's speech in the whole book of Job, is filled with what they call poetic hyperbole. Meaning there's exaggerated language, right? Remember how it spoke of the war horse and how it swallows the ground as it runs? It doesn't really do that, right? It's poetic exaggeration. The ostrich would laugh at the horse as it ran by. Remember how it said here about Behemoth, his bones are tubes of bronze. So none of those statements are actually true, but is used to create an effect. So that's how I would understand some of these details about Behemoth and Leviathan, that they're real creatures, but I also do think that there is a greater significance to these creatures beyond just their real identity, that there's a symbolic significance to them. And I don't get that so much from Job, but I get it from passages outside of Job. Leviathan in particular is referred to several times in the Old Testament as a symbol of cosmic uh, dark forces. For example, it says in Isaiah 27.1, 
In that day, the Lord with his hard and great and strong sword will punish Leviathan, the fleeing serpent, Leviathan, the twisting serpent, and he will slay the dragon that is in the sea. So here in Isaiah 27, he's referring to a Leviathan as this dark spiritual force that opposed ancient Israel and that one day God was going to slay Leviathan. Now we saw at the very beginning of the book of Job the appearance of Satan, right? But Satan kind of disappears from the end of chapter 2 all the way here to the end. I kind of wonder if this might have greater reference to perhaps Satan. And in fact, when you come and you cross over to the New Testament, we see where Revelation chapter 12 and 20 speak of Satan this way. Revelation speaks to him as the great serpent and dragon. So overall, I think these two creatures are real, the hippo and the, and the crocodile, but they are used for symbols of dark spiritual forces. All that said, all that said, however you identify these creatures, really the bottom line is still the same. Whatever you say. Unlike Job or any per- person, we cannot control these creatures, but God is able to control all of them, can't he? He can control these mighty animals, and he can control the darkest spiritual forces, even Satan, as we saw in those first few chapters. None of them can challenge the power of God. And that's really the overarching point here. God has power to judge. He has power to humble. We saw that he can humble all humanity. He humbled Daniel. In Daniel chapter 4, he humbled Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest, mightiest king. God completely humbled this man the mightiest man on the planet. And he can also humble a godly man like Job who still had room to grow, amen? And I think that kind of fits with where we're going here when we go to chapter 42 as Job responds to the Lord. In chapter 42, we read about how Job responds to the Lord. Let me read verses 1 to 6 with you. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? He's quoting God. Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. Again, he's quoting the Lord. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. So Job acknowledges God's power to do all things. Now he sees that he was wrong to put himself on a plane with God, wasn't he? He spoke about things that he did not understand. And this realization became intensely personal. He not only had heard about God, knew he existed, but now he saw him. Now again, this is not a a full encounter of seeing God like we spoke of in Job 19 when we will see God at the end of time. But he had this this manifestation of God, and this did change and transform Job. He was different. As he says, I despise myself, and I repent in dust and ashes. For the first time in all of the book of Job, he repents. He repents. He was a godly, righteous man, but he had gotten off track in his view of God, and he needed to repent. And so God used this incredible speech to bring him low and to bring him to this point. 
He wasn't repenting of the things that he did that caused his suffering. He wasn't being punished for that. That was part of God's trial for him. But he had erred in what he had said, and now he repented. And we saw in an earlier message how God will discipline his people, won't he? That they will produce greater spiritual fruit. And this is exactly what happened in the life of Job. Now, after Job's repentance, there are two interesting features as the story concludes. Pick up with me in verse 7. It says, After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you, for I will accept his prayer now to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite and Bildad the Shuhite and Zophar the Naamathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So the first thing you see here is the Lord rebukes Job's friends. Job needed to repent, and so did his friend. Their repentance was on a different matter, though. Their view of God was mistaken, that God's punishment is always proportional to a sin. And they, and they were applying this to Job and saying, you must have sinned so egregiously. And they were basically God's spokesmen, saying they had it all figured out about Job. And they spoke to Job in very harsh and inaccurate ways. I didn't go through this during the series, but if you go back and read their speeches, I mean, they really stick it to Job. They insinuate that his children died because of their sin. There's no evidence of that in Scripture. In Job, in Job 22, Eliphaz goes on in great detail uh, saying that Job was a man of great evil and did all these things even though there's no basis for this accusation. So they needed to be rebuked, and the Lord did so, and they were restored. And then, lastly, we see the Lord restores Job's fortunes. The Lord restores Job's fortunes. Verses 10 to 17. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then came to him all his brothers and sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his, own, in his house. And they showed him sympathy and had comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. And each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold. And the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. And he called the name of his first daughter Jemima, and the, second, the name of his second Kizia, and the name of his third Karen Hapuk. And in all the land there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this Job lived 140 years, and saw his sons and his sons' sons four generations. And Job died an old man and full of days. So at the start of the story... Job was blessed with great wealth and children, but lost all of that. But now the Lord restored him. The Lord doubled the numbers of his livestock and gave him ten children. He even lived long enough to see his grandchildren, his brothers, his sisters, his friends. They all come back now around him to support and love him. And after this, as it says there, he died full of days. Now, I don't want you to take away from this 
that this means that in every case, God always restores people to the full capacity, in a sense, as he did here with Job. Sometimes God does that. But sometimes he doesn't, and we see plenty of examples in Scripture. So that's not a promise somehow that God gives, but there is a promise that God will restore all things in the new creation when Jesus returns. Amen? That is the hope and restoration we all should look for and long for. So congratulations for going through the book of Job with me. (laughs) 42 chapters in 10 weeks. It's been quite a journey. As we wrap up, I want to go back to the example of Job and just tie together a few things that we might learn from his example as we deal with suffering in our own lives. We will not suffer more than likely like Job. But Scripture teaches us, and our experience definitely affirms this, that, friends, we live in a radically fallen world, don't we? Radically fallen world. Fixtures of life include sin and sickness, unemployment, unfulfilled dreams, divorce, loneliness, infertility, strife, and death. So, this is part of life. And I think the wise approach as a Christian is not to somehow map out your life so that you will avoid every single instance of suffering. Yes, there's wisdom to avoid some things that are self-inflicted, but you will suffer in this life. And so the point is not to avoid it entirely, but to be prepared for it now. Don't wait until you're crushed under the affliction of life and then start searching for answers. Don't wait until that relationship is ruined, that medical test is is grim, that job is lost, or a loved one dies. It's so much more difficult at that point. Now is the time to prepare our hearts for the day of trial. You will not resolve every issue, but you will be much greater, you'll be much more prepared to weather the storms of life. Amen? So resolve in your heart, what will I learn from Job walking forward today, amen? Let me just bring up three lessons quickly from Job's life. First is the trust of Job. When he heard first that news, that tragic news of everything being lost, he said in 121, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We must develop a majestic, glorious view of God where, friends, He is Lord over all things, even suffering, even suffering. If we can get that in our heads, then we're at a point where we can embrace those truths that were said in that verse that the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. The Lord gives. He gives, friends, everything that you and I have that is good, it ultimately comes from God. The money you have, the family you have, the relationships you have, the health that you have, it's all a gift from God. You don't own them. You didn't earn them. You say, well, I work hard. Well, you might work hard, but the Bible says even the strength that you have to work hard and earn those things comes from God. Everything. And so when we see things as ultimately a gift of God, it dramatically changes things, doesn't it? You don't cling on to the things so that when they are taken from you, your life is ruined. You see everything as a gift and you would just want to enjoy what you have. The Lord gives. 
And he also takes away. God has the right to take away things. He can take away money, relationships, even life. Sometimes Christians have it in their minds that God is somehow obligated to give each Christian a long, prosperous, fulfilling life filled with blessings. And if that doesn't happen, they become bitter toward God. God does not owe us anything. We owe Him everything. He is the Creator. And friends, we need to trust Him even when the days are difficult, even when the ways of God are mysterious as they were with Job. That God is still good. And He gives and He takes away. But blessed be the name of the Lord. Amen? Second, the laments of Job. If you recall... A lament is when someone experiences great trouble and turns to God to express their grief and their anger and their doubt. Laments are the biblical vocabulary, if you will, to express our suffering. And the need for laments is very real. Job started great out of the gate, didn't he? Blessed be the name of the Lord. But then things started hitting home after the months came on and the, the, the things in his life were empty and, he, and the people were silent toward him and his suffering intensified He was broken, genuinely broken. And so he cried out to God. And it's no accident that a significant part of the book of Job is filled with his laments. Numerous laments are recorded in the book of Job and also in the book of Psalms. I think this is the the case because God wants us to know that it is permissible for God's people to feel this way. But he doesn't just want us to rant and rave. He gives us a vocabulary in how to speak to God, doesn't he? A parameter, if you will, in how we should communicate our hurts and our griefs to God. And God knows us, and he knows what it takes to heal. And he wants us to express our laments rather than turning to a bottle of alcohol or prescription medicine or food or pornography, or whatever the case may be that we turn to to deal with our suffering. God wants us to turn to these laments and express our sorrow to Him. I truly believe that you will experience more healing by going to, the God, going to God in prayer than from anything else in this universe. I am absolutely convinced of that. But sometimes it's one of the, the, the least things that we turn to. And because God loves us, he wants us to move from that place of lament, though, back to a place of trust. But laments are an important part as we deal with suffering. It's not for the weak. It's not for the weak. It's for those who trust God enough to follow what he's told us to do. And then third, the hope of Job. You know, as the story progresses, Job longs for this third party to mediate between him and God. And amazingly, friends, this mediator is going to be both God and Redeemer. God and Redeemer. Same person. Remember back in Job 19, 25 to 27, he declared, For I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has thus been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another. My heart faints within me. Friends, Job believes in a Redeemer who one day, at the last day, the end of time, would stand on the earth. And Job would have a new body. 
And in that new body, he would see God face to face. Isn't it incredible that 2,000 years before the time of Jesus, that Job is speaking about these things, isn't it? And when Jesus comes on the scene, he reveals that he's exactly what Job was longing for, that he is fully God, he took on humanity, and he is the Redeemer that you and I all need. He lived the sinless, perfect life that none of us live, friends. Even a righteous person like Job doesn't live this way. And so, when Jesus died, He died on the cross to stand as our Redeemer, someone between the Father and us who would take upon His self our sins so that we could be forgiven and receive the perfect righteousness of Christ. Jesus also promised that at the end of time, we will receive resurrection bodies and see Him face to face. And then... And only then, all suffering will be gone. Then the restoration will be complete. So friends, ultimately our hope is not in ourselves, not in our willpower, but it is found in Christ. Have you trusted Christ? Have you definitively come to that place in your life where you have put your faith and trust in Jesus to forgive your sin and to be your Lord The ultimate answer to our suffering is found in the person of Jesus. And the greatest thing you can do if you've never trusted Christ to deal with the trials and afflictions of life is to humble yourself, get on your knees, confess your sin before God, and to place Jesus as Lord of your life. Your life will never be the same after that. This past Friday at our prayer meeting was when Lori Fusco shared about her stage 4 cancer. You know, it was a pretty emotional moment for us in the room. It was really sad. But the sorrow of that moment was outweighed by her trust in Christ. And it was no act. She had a complete peace that you can't manufacture. And then she went on to tell us these stories, some of them absolutely just hilarious, about her sharing the gospel with nurses and doctors and even a chaplain. (laughs) That's Lori. And we love her for that. And I hold Lori in very high regard. But she would be the first to say that it is not about herself. It all comes from God. And that we shouldn't put too much hope and and stock in Lori, but in the God who was undergirding Lori. Because you see, friends, that same faith is available to each Christian, not just a certain few. Indeed, it should be the standard of every Christian to endure suffering in the same way. So let us learn the lessons from the book of Job to understand God's ways and to show a watching world the power of God. Amen? Let us pray. Lord, as we have seen from your word, there is indeed none like you. Nothing is too difficult for you, as your word says. You are great and you are almighty. And Lord, you rule over the universe, both the animals and the spiritual realm. And you rule over humanity. And Lord, who are we 
to find fault with you. And Lord, that is my prayer. That Lord, if we come into this place today with views of you that are mistaken and unbiblical, that like Job, we would repent and want to receive you for who you are, not what we imagine you to be, but who you are is revealed in your scripture and most of all revealed fully in your son, Jesus Christ, who loved us so much that he came to die so that we might have an eternal hope. Father, we pray that you would help us to remember and to soak in all of these truths that we have absorbed from the book of Job these last few months and make us firm for that day of trial to prepare in our hearts now so that we would indeed be the light of the world when that day comes. And Lord, that our hearts would be firm and at peace with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.